In exploring the terrifying words of Mark 13, verses 14 through 23, the Reverend S.D. Gardner Cantor brings Jesus' teaching about forgiveness, freedom, and welcoming the stranger into contrast with the fearful apocalypse and the notion of the elect that weave themes and counter-themes in the New Testament and later Christian traditions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. The desolating sacrilege. This is a phrase that's so terrifying and so profound that it surprised me to find out how elusive its exact meaning is, at least in the New Testament. But one thing that seems clear is it does refer back to our reading of today from Daniel. And in fact, in several places in Daniel and also in 1 Maccabees, it refers to a very specific event. The desolating sacrilege was the altar to Zeus being erected by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes in the holy temple in Jerusalem in 167 BC. Apparently the king had responded to some uprising by the Jews and so he both abolished the sacred and traditional burnt offering sacrifices and he instituted pagan worship in the temple. But there was a quick and very courageous resistance as a reaction to this led by the family of Judas Maccabeus. The resistance was successful beyond all odds and then the cleansing of the temple has been remembered ever after in the festival of Hanukkah or the dedication of the temple. But in the Gospel of Mark, what is described as some kind of imminent disaster of tremendously horrifying proportions that somehow relates to this much earlier abomination. The parenthetical, let the reader understand, seems to me to be a modern equivalent, or rather an ancient equivalent, of the modern, if you catch my drift. And I think it must indicate that it was code for that ancient travesty. And I think it also indicates that these people, the, the writer of Mark and the first century Jews, were still suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome from this event 230 years earlier. But the thing that strikes me the most about this passage is the utterly terrifying nature of it. It's certainly about the scariest thing in the New Testament, if not in the Old. And if you listen to the three readings of today, it is the scariest of the three. And in fact, the reading from Hebrews seems positively cheerful in contrast. I wondered where is the voice of the one who always says, fear not, in almost every fearful situation. Even before I read that many scholars feel that the desolating sacrilege passage, it's also called the Little Apocalypse, is probably a later addition to Mark, I felt that this could not be the voice of Jesus. The passage, in fact, is quite likely a later addition, since it seems to describe, if anything, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is after the writing of Mark. That certainly would be an analogous sacrilege of the time. 
but it describes a kind of apocalypse that Jesus seemed to have rejected in his ministry, at least in his earliest, in the earliest gospel of Mark. Jesus seemed to believe in a more nature-centered and gradual development of the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God was like the slow growth of the mustard seed, which in the fullness of time gives shelter to all the birds of the air. The kingdom of God was like a sower, sowing seeds in a dangerous world. The kingdom of God was like a field of crops that comes to full ripeness in the fullness of time and then is gathered together in one great harvest. But in the Gospel of Matthew, which is written from an ancient Jewish perspective, the parables are quite different from Mark, and there are quite a few more of them. In the Matthean version of the harvest, the good crops are separated from the weeds, and the weeds are thrown into the furnace. And just in case the reader didn't quite get the point, Jesus explains the parable, which he almost never does. And he explains it with a typically Jewish apocalyptic vision. The good seeds are the children of God's kingdom, The bad seeds are the children of the evil one. And the resulting weeds will be burned up with fire at the end of the age. This explanation in many of the parables in Matthew, the burning of the bad weeds, the sorting of the good fish and the bad fish, the sorting of the goats from the sheep, describe the apocalyptic doctrine of the elect. And when the people are separated like the sheep and the goats, they are told by Jesus... You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, it was Paul that introduced the idea of the elect into the New Testament. And he did it for a specific reason. He did it to explain why it was that the Jews, the chosen people, had not accepted Jesus as as their Messiah. And so he went back to the idea of the division of the unbelieving descendants of Abraham as opposed to the elect, the faithful remnant who were deserving of salvation. Paul, of course, numbers himself among this elect. And his explanations led us to the doctrine of predestination. In his letter to the Romans, the author writes, We know that all things work together for the good of all those who love God, who are called to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn of a large family. So it is not entirely clear who this elect might be, but it appears that it is simply not just to be Christian. It appears that you had to be chosen before your birth. But it seems to me that the great love that Jesus showed in his Gospels for the lost really is at odds with this idea of the elect. In the parables of the lost sheep, the lost son, and the lost coin, Jesus models for us again and again the preference he felt that God had for the lost ones. The sheep who has wandered far is treasured above all the faithful sheep. The son who squandered his father's money, lived an immoral life, and comes crawling home to be a slave is raised up ahead of his virtuous and faithful son. And the woman who has lost her precious coin drops everything she is doing and labors hard until she finds it. And what rejoicing there is when the lost ones are found. And in fact, in the earlier part of of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says explicitly, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. 
But after a time, he changes his mind. He becomes even more inclusive than that. It's possibly as a result of his encounter with a very feisty Syrophoenician woman. He first tells her, I'm sorry, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. But then her tremendous faith and her humility changes his mind, and thereafter he is open to even Gentiles and Samaritans. He already had amazed everyone by opening his ministry to the marginalized of his own faith, the poor, the sick, the traitorous tax collectors, and even women. And now he opens it even further. He speaks and shares water with a Samaritan woman, shocking his disciples by the outrageousness of his transgression of the purity code. And when he wants to cite an example of what it means to be a true neighbor, he tells a story of a good Samaritan. Now this phrase really must have seemed like an oxymoron to the ancient Jews who hated the Samaritans so deeply. Jesus' gift to us always is his insistence on forgiveness and healing and love to all the people he encountered and through all the inevitable suffering of life. After all, even as the worst thing imaginable happened to him as he was tortured to death on a cross, he looked down and he forgave his torturers, or at least he asked God to forgive them. In a story in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples asked him whether a man who was born blind was blind because of his sins or the sins of his parents. Now Jesus was given a great excuse to proclaim that this man deserved his curse and was being punished by God, but that's not what he says at all. He says that the man was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Jesus came to us in this world of tragedy and glory specifically to show how a person might live in such a world. It is of necessity a world of tragedy and glory because, as my childhood priest explained to me, our world is a world shot through and through with freedom. And this applies not only to the action of human beings, it applies to the action of the crust of the earth and the action of the winds. Jesus came to show us how we might let God's work be revealed in us, even in struggling and suffering. How can we welcome the marginalized? How can we be a servant? How can we welcome and honor the stranger? How can we avoid seeing ourselves as the elect, the aloof, the superior ones? Unfortunately, the great fear, the terror, and the loathing in our story of today has not been extinguished in the several millenniums since it was written. But Jesus seems to say that a life lived in love and forgiveness and healing does not have time for such terror. Nor does it have time for the brutal considerations of who and what is the only chosen way. There's no question about it, life can be terrifying. As Paul says, it can be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But only if we fail to remember that we are not among those who shrink back. We are among those who follow the way of compassion, the way of forgiveness, the way of love, even in a world that is utterly unpredictable, even in a world that is shot through and through with freedom.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We strive to be a welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and a journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or through our website, OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.